In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I get to chat with a man who has spent his life in the transport and construction industries. Terry Mundy has taken up writing during his retirement and has already written two books and has plans for a third. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Terry Mundy, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you. Great to be here. You've got an interest in history, your family history. How did that all come about? Well, the, fir- the first book that I uh, produced was on the family history. Um, and I've always kept in touch with the older people. Um, and I was... Always admired that generation, you know, the, the war and post-war generation uh, for what they went through. And, and, and I worked a lot with my father and I was always in awe of their ability to do things with very little equipment. They were amazing. They really were. And, um, and, and throw in a sibling, a younger brother, who... Uh, annoyed the hell out of me to uh, put it all together as a reference for the rest of the family. And I'd got to that stage in life of uh, approaching retirement uh, and I'd had a pretty serious near-miss accident and I was diagnosed with PTSD. And I just laughed it off, you know, soldiers get PTSD. But one of the effects was I'd lost the ability to concentrate to read or write for long periods of time, which were things I had done in the past. Uh, So a combination of my admiration of the previous generation, an annoying brother who would leave it alone, and and I thought, well, maybe this might get my concentration and mind centred again. So I set out on the task and took me a couple of years to research the family and... uh, and uh, when I got it all together, we produced it and uh, in, released it in conjunction with the uh, first family reunion ever, which was a great success in Warwick. And I'm pleased to say the book itself, many members of the family have told me they still use it as a reference when they're talking amongst themselves or explaining history to the next generation. The book comes out, so... For me, that was very rewarding. So, uh, but in the course of that, I found a couple of other stories as well. Is it a book just designed for the family? Um, it has a bit of history in it, but basically, yes, it's, uh, the first one is really a reference and a history of the family. Uh, and we discovered a few things in the production of that, like the Indigenous connection, which most didn't know about. I did because I knew my grandmother and... And, you know, a cousin of mine lived with them. Uh, we weren't uh, raised in the culture as such, but we were aware of the culture. And many of her sayings and, and actions, my father acted as a conduit with that knowledge to me. So, um, and we found out some war history that we didn't know and, and, uh, and some... Uh, union strife that we weren't aware of and and uh, so that led to the second book which is it's a the second book is a fiction 
but based on real events and real characters. The near miss accident, what happened? Oh, lost the front wheel off a of Kenworth at 100 kilometres an hour with 110,000 litres of unleaded on board. That makes you sit up straight and seat. Talk us through it. What happened? Um, uh, <clears throat> it involves some legal action after this, so I'll be quite careful. But basically it was uh, just on sunup on the Bruce Highway and uh, I was about an hour from my destination and uh, I heard a large crack. And so instant, in, instantly, you know, you put the other, other hand on the steering wheel uh, next thing, the front axle broke on the driver's side and the whole wheel come adrift. And luckily, I still thank God for this, it bounced and bounced over a car coming the other way that had a young family in it. Uh, so the axle hit the ground, uh, dragged on the bitchman. Luckily, it was my side, the right-hand side, because all the outlet valves for the tankers were on the left-hand side. The right-hand side was covered in sparks. Um, I got the truck pulled up, I got it slowed enough to get it in off the road, but by this time the axle was uh, that hot it set fire to the grass underneath me. And, and I didn't realise I'd even done it, and your training kicks in then. And I've been a private pilot too, so you do a lot of repetition training there. Um, I, I realised it was like a, I was an out-of-body experience. I was standing beside the truck with a fire extinguisher, putting out the grass underneath it and I noticed to my right there was someone else there and it was a farmer across the road who saw it happen and he was there with his extinguisher and he said to me thank god you're not loaded and when I told him I was fully loaded he said oh if I'd known that I would have run the other way <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah but the, the thing about the whole incident that stuck in my mind was um how close it come to destroying a family in that car because the front wheel of a Kenworth with the hub attached at 500 kilos. What and was their reaction? They never even stopped. No. They kept going, yeah. And I still to this day don't know whether they, they probably, they would have, the father would have had to see it. Um, it bounced, bounced straight over the bonnet on an angle into the paddock and the hub was that hot when it landed in the paddock on the cane trash blanket it set fire to the trash. So, uh, yeah, so um, I thought, you know, oh, gee, that was close, that was lucky, you know, but a few days later, uh, started to niggle at me. And eventually I got off the highway because anyone that's been on the highway long enough, the highway man will get you, as they say. And I've, I'd had enough close shaves and I thought, well, that enough is enough. Time what sort of things did you see when you were driving then? Uh, during my career? Yeah. Uh, I think the earliest one I saw was um, near Farina in the Northern Territory. I was probably 18 or 19. And I come across a truck that was rolled over and on fire and uh, I couldn't get to him. Uh, he burnt to death. He was still screaming for help when I got there. And uh, in those days, I'm talking 1970, we, uh, we all carried guns in the trucks. And I went back to the truck. I, you know, a 19-year-old, I was going to put him out of his misery. And luckily, I'd cleaned the truck out that day and didn't put the gun back in. Would you have done it? I don't know. Mm. Ask me, I often ask myself, you know, as I reminisce. But, um, 
yeah, I heard that man scream for three months, you know. And funny thing is, since then I'd always had the fear of uh, truck accidents and fire. And when I got to the the end of my working life, I took it to the limit with the front wheel covered off. So, uh, yeah, I was uh, pretty fortunate to survive. What was the reaction, though, when you sat? Was it slow motion when it unfolded as you were going through it? In my mind, I could, yeah, I, I could, I could see as if for those seconds the world slowed down. Um, I, I didn't even realise that I'd unclipped my seatbelt, and I, I was standing up in the seat with both hands on the left-hand side of the steering wheel, trying to hold the truck straight, uh, to the extent that I dislocated my shoulder, the right shoulder. Um, and fortunately, I had enough sense not to touch the brake uh, and let it slow uh, to a point where I could get it in off the road. So why didn't you hit the trailer brakes? On the modern trucks, they're all as one. The older trucks, we had a handpiece we could operate. Well, that was the one that I was I was used to. The, yeah, yeah. The trailer brake, you'd pull a lever to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't go for the trailer brake? Most of the trucks, they don't exist anymore. So it didn't it, have it on the truck no, that you were no, driving? No, no. Mm. Yeah, the old trucks, you could adjust your bias and pull the handpiece on. And uh, in a lot of cases in road trains, you use that all the time to pull yourself straight as you're going down hills because uh, the trailers will push you, you know. Uh, yeah, so uh, it, that option wasn't available. So we just let the speed wash off and got it in and, and I walked away. And it was uh, not long after I real- that happened that I realised I've had enough of this. So I uh, need to do something else, like retire. The PTSD. Mm. How did that affect you? Well, um, I became very cautious, very anxious when I drove. You looked at every culvert. You looked, you looked for an escape route all day long. What if it happens here? What if it happens there? Uh, and it made you more alert of the oncoming traffic. You know, you, you to the point where you concentrated that much, you became very tired, um, and it, and it became it just wasn't fun at all anymore. It just wasn't fun, um, and and. I'd, I'd done many things in life, including management and had my own businesses, but I always went back to trucks in the quiet times or in between times. I'd go back to trucks because I, I knew the game and I could always get work. Um, but after that, that was it. What was the best part about driving back in the day when you were enjoying it? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I love being in the bush. I love the country. And I, as a young man, I enjoyed the challenge. I mean, uh, in the territory, we were teenagers basically, and and we took pride in the fact that if something happened, we could get ourselves going again. We could fix it, fix the gear. No mobile phones, no radios. So we became very practical, very handy, which helped all of us in later life as we got into our own businesses. Um, um, yeah, I think the challenge, and in later life, in when I was doing fuel, I, 
I would often put my hand up to do the, the runs out to the properties because they were wonderful people on the land. And um, I'd, I'd I used to just love going out to all the different stations and, and dropping the fuel off. And, and if they were day trips, I'd pick up, uh, on my way to work, I'd pick up a half a dozen newspapers and half a dozen bottles of milk. And, and they appreciated that, appreciated that when you got there with the, the paper and the milk. And, and uh, by, the, by the time you got back at night, you usually had three or four lunches because they all insisted you have a, a <laughs> cup of tea and a, 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 a cigar, you know. So, uh, yeah, but I, um, in the younger years, I just loved the bush. I, I was in the Territory uh, a lot and, uh, and uh, just loved the solitude. And uh, in actual fact... In uh, the early 70s, I was uh, carting into a, an American company building the beef road up to Boorooloo, American company called um, Dillingham's. And I got on quite well with the boss. And he said to me that uh, when this project's finished, we're going back stateside to Alaska to build a pipeline and a road. Why don't you come with us? Being young, unattached. I said, Poor, why not? Let's go. But I had to go back to the coast, to Townsville, where my folks were, to get all the paperwork. It took about five months in those days to get green cards and passports. and um, So I went back there. Pre-internet. Definitely pre-internet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Morse code had just finished, yeah. So um, I went back there. and uh, But I was, of course, I was young. I was broke. So I needed a job in those five months. And a friend of mine said, there's a company down the road. They're looking for someone to drive backhoe and truck. And so I went down there to apply for the job and uh, the office girl ended up being my wife. So I never got to Alaska until two years before COVID. We went together. So, uh, yeah, so um, that's how I met my wife. Is it one of those things that you wish you had gone, apart from the fact that you met your wife? Just work-wise and, and uh, just the adventure of it. Oh, yeah, I think so, you know. Because um, in, in those days, the Americans are that far advanced with their earth-moving gear and transport gear, and, and uh, it was quite exciting to think about being there and working on those projects. Uh, but I don't regret it. I mean, um, 50 years on, she's still my wife. <laughs> Talk about the Americans and their earth moving. The the road from Queensland going up to Cap between Mount Isa and Camerwheel, the track, and then you hit the Northern Territory roads, which the Americans put together. Was that uh, an indicator of what you were expecting over there? Uh, yeah, pretty much. But I'd, I'd seen, uh, you know, movies, there weren't videos in those days, movies of projects happening over there and, and and as my father used to say hydraulics never arrived in Australia with earth moving gear, gear until the war, until the second world war um, so uh, yeah they were pretty well advanced and, and we still get most of our best earth moving equipment from America so uh, it, it, would, it would have been an exciting prospect had the, had the polar bears and the coal not got me <laughs> now, when you're talking about earth moving in Townsville in that area, what sort of things were you doing? 
uh, Ross River Dam, a um, lot of subdivisional work. Um, Townsville went through a boom in the 70s, 80s, and then again uh, a decade later. So a lot of subdivisional work. And um, uh, I've still got a brother there who's 80. Uh, still got 30 men working for him, and he's still the biggest and channeling contractor in North Queensland. So it's been in the family, you know, and, and um, we grew up with Dad, uh, who um, travelled all over Australia in the 50s and 60s, uh, in the period when uh, the country was converting a lot of the regional and small towns from septic to sewage, reticulation. And he was working for a company called NSN Constructions, who had their origins in Ipswich. Um, but they worked all over the East Coast and uh, I actually started school in Victoria. Um, uh, and I was only talking yesterday. Uh, father put himself through um, night school and became a licensed drainer and plumber and worked his way up to a supervisory role with this, with this company. And um, Monday to Friday, that was his job, and Saturday and Sunday... He had a contract to cut railway sleepers for the railways. So he was a seven-day working man. And uh, at least one day on each weekend, I'd be up at four to go out with him to the timber lease. And uh, I was only a little wee tacker then, but uh, my job was to light the fire and boil the billy so he could have a cup of tea while he was getting his equipment ready. And uh, uh, to this day, um, the smell of gum leaves burning on a fire brings back an image of the old man. So uh, it's funny, the uh, memories that stick with you, you know. How was your relationship with him? Oh, he was a... I, I used to always say he, he, he had a... He, he had a pretty basic philosophy. Uh, pat him on the back, kick him in the bum. You know, if they were good, he'd pat you on the back. Or, um, but he was... Uh, he was Tall, wiry man with big hands, um, but, but an even bigger heart, you know. And I learnt that much of him as a kid. You, you don't, you don't realise you're learning, but you're absorbing that information. And when you start work and end up out on your own, it's uh, surprising how many of those lessons come back, you know. Uh, even to get an axle out of the mud, you know, the old fulcrum and lever and and. Uh, if he couldn't do it with a fulcrum and lever, he'd get his axe and go and cut down a bigger lever. You know, so, uh, they were they were ingenious, an ingenious generation. You know. What would you say would be the biggest lesson you learned from your father? Um, he told me once. <clears throat> he told me once um, what people may say or think about us is none of our business. What is our business is to get on with life and do the right thing by ourselves and those around us. So, you know, over the years I've had a few little ventures that I've had to go at and I've copped criticism and I learned just to ignore that. Uh, I remember once I started a business in Townsville, transportable building business, and uh, I heard different comments. He's not a builder, he doesn't know what he's doing. So we, Marie and I built the business up over five or six years and then one of the multinationals bought us out and I was told I was lucky. So you make your own luck. Yeah. 
Well, as John Laws says, he's uh, saying the harder he works, the luckier he's, luckier he seems to get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but um, no, he was a he was a a big man, but a, a gentle soul. You know? So, and it's and it's funny. Um, mother and father were <coughs> totally opposites. She was Irish Catholic, and could be abrasive, and he was a he was a real he wasn't a pushover, but he, he, he had a real tender t- uh, side to him for a big man. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> Mum was an Irish Catholic. He was an atheist, but they both believed that the Ten Commandments that the Christian faith is based around were a good basis to raise a family. And uh, uh, my, wife, <clears throat> my, my wife and I had the same attitude with our kids, so... Uh, yeah, we, we were taught right from wrong and work ethics and that's probably the greatest gift they gave us was uh, work ethics and the right from wrong. And he used to say, there's, uh, when it comes to right and wrong, it's only black and white. There's no, no grey, you know. So, uh, yeah, great people. He was an atheist. How did that affect you? Um, and it's funny, you know, his, his mother was... My father was of Indigenous descent and his mother was in an indigenous woman, and she became a strict Presbyterian. She used to, uh, used to hook up the uh, sulky of a Sunday morning and go down to Glad, uh, Gladfield to the church. Um, now, it didn't really affect me because he always had the attitude that um, he didn't have to go to church to be a, a good person. And he, 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 he would help people, and if he had any spare, he always helped people. And... Um, 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 I I went to a couple of Catholic schools. I spent five years in a boarding school. I went to eight different schools because wherever he had worked, that's where we lived. And then I spent the last uh, five years at a Catholic boarding school. Um, and I always seemed to be able to reconcile that in my mind because he was a good man, um, good citizen. And, uh, and I became... Very much like him, even though we were talking about it yesterday about, you know, is there a God and is there a heaven? And I suppose I've questioned it as many times as anyone else has. Um, But as I said to uh, Glenn yesterday, I hope there is a God and a heaven uh, because I need someone to thank because I've had a a really great life. With more to come, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about boarding school. Did you enjoy that? Um, <clears throat> in hindsight, it was they were great years, you know. And I've still got mates fifty years later from there. And it was an agricultural college on the Herbert River up at Abergarry. Uh, so we it was a different boarding school life. Uh, I got to play a lot of sport because that was your way of getting out of the college and going to Charters Towers to play footy or Townsville or, or whatever. Um, and I wasn't really that interested in school as such. Um, before boarding school, I used to tell everyone I only went there to eat me lunch. Mum would pack lunch, so I had to go somewhere to eat it. Uh, <laughs> but by the time I got to about grade nine or ten at boarding school, uh, a new Christian brother arrived, a, bro- a fellow called Brother McHenry. And he was in his late 70s then. 
and he was a marvellous teacher. He had a way of getting you interested in a subject. He did English, he did uh, ancient and modern history, and um, and um, by the time I'd gone, done grade 10, uh, I'd won a Commonwealth scholarship that paid to do a grade 11 and 12. Uh, so he sort of turned the corner for me as far as putting a bit more effort into the education. Um, so I got through grade 12 and uh, I would have liked to have done architecture, uh, but of course the family couldn't afford it, you know, it was different times in those days. Um, so I, um, I think I finished the last exam on a Wednesday, caught the train home Thursday, went to work Monday. The first job, tell us about that. First job, driving a front-end loader. Um, on sewage reticulation work with father. Um, and uh, anyway, that, that went okay. I enjoyed working with him. But then I got itchy feet and, uh, and, and a friend said he had good work in the Territory, so I ended up in the Northern Territory. Um, and what... It was a place of adventure back in the day, the territory. Well, it was, and it wasn't even a state then. It was still a federal territory under federal laws, and it was the last frontier. <laughs> and it was full of men hiding from state laws for, uh, um, you know, uh, what, what was it called when they had alimony? They call it alimony in America, don't they? But, um, yeah, and uh, it was. It was, uh, was the last frontier. Um, but there was a lot of good people there, and... A lot of hard people, but people that were prepared to share their experience and knowledge, you know. Great place to learn. Great place to learn. So when the move from Earthworks to uh, uh, truck driving, or was it all just integrated? It's pretty much integrated, you know, and um, and uh, after we were married, I was uh, uh, working for a company uh, shifting earth moving equipment around, and my knowledge or ability to drive earth equipment uh, helped me with a job because uh, they'd just tell me such and such is at a certain location, go and pick it up. They didn't have to leave anyone there because I just laid myself, you know, whether it was a dozer or a loader or whatever. Um, yeah, and they tend to be integrated. Um, and uh, I, when I think back, the variety of work that I've done, and I really shake my head sometimes because... You know, apart from all the driving and the earth moving, uh, Marie and I have had a couple of small businesses and gone all right. Um, I've sat on the board of a, a Catholic boarding school. Um, I've sat on the board of Recreational Aviation Australia. I've been a private pilot. Um, and, you know, I've been involved with the kids' sport, uh, junior sport, for many years before we... Uh, they became adults and it's, it's been a great variety. I know enough about that, a lot of different things, just enough knowledge to get myself into trouble. So, um, Is it your ability to think and common sense? Um, yeah, well, um, under father's jurisdiction, uh, you were given the opportunity or expected to think for yourself. Yes, he, he realised mistakes would be made, uh, but mistakes were often very good lessons. And, and 
usually uh, he'd just laugh off if you made a blunder. If you made it the second time, the eyebrows would raise. But, uh, yeah, but um, and common sense, geez, there's not a lot of that around nowadays, is there? Yeah, do you find that uh, because you were out bush that you got a lot more of the chance to expand your horizons and think for yourself because you were out in the bush? Absolutely, absolutely. And in some cases it was, you know, um, if you're up the Tenamai track, you had enough tucker for three or four days and you broke down, well, you had to get going, otherwise you'd be hungry on day five and six, you know. So, uh, and, and, it was, and it was during that time that I learnt to cook my world-famous signature dish of T-bone steak and eggs, maybe with some onions on a good day. <laughs> Did you ever get stuck and worried about going to these remote places? Did uh, you ever get a little bit concerned that you wouldn't get back? Um, I, I guess sometimes you did. I, I can't remember an occasion where I felt hopeless because the reality was people always knew where you were going anyway, even though there was no communication. But... If you weren't back by day five or six, they'd probably come looking for you anyway. But um, yeah, it's um, but but it was a challenge. It was a, you challenged yourself to to keep yourself going or get yourself going again. And uh, and nowadays, us old fellas often laugh that uh, if they break down on the road, the first thing they do is pick the phone up. Uh, we had no phones, we had no radio, so uh, you know you had to had to. Um, uh, I, I remember my father told me a story once how uh, he did a water pump on an old Chev truck on Cunningham's Gap and uh, he pulled the pump off and the bearing had failed, needle bearings, and he pulled a uh, board off one of the foxes he had a load of fruit on and he sat there with a pocket knife and whittled needles out of pine and put back in the bearing, packed it in grease and it got him down to the markets in Brisbane and... Uh, and got him, uh, and then he could go and get another bearing and fix it properly, you know. So you had to use that sort of thinking, uh, you know, if, if I can just get this fixed, this, you know, I remember once I, uh, I was in a big body truck and I uh, had a really long tail shaft and the saddle holding the centre bearing broke. So the tail shaft fell down. So I got pulled up in time and... Uh, uh, I cut leather straps off a machine that was on the back of the truck and used that to hold the tail shaft up. And about every 30 or 40 mile, the strap would wear through. So I'd cut another piece and put it up. And eventually, uh, where was Yeah, I was between Chiligo and Mariba. So I got into Mariba and I was able to take the broken saddle to, to a um, welder and get him to weld it up and go and get a couple of bolts and bolt it back together and, and, and then head for home. And those, when you hop back in the truck and know you're fixed, you're right, you're on your way, you're pretty satisfying, you know, to, to think that, well, I got through that one, what's next? Big miles heading out west, what do you think about? Um, I, I, I love music and, uh, you know, as you know, um, the old radios weren't that good and, and it was a blessing when the old tapes come in. Uh, I said to someone a while back about uh, keeping one of the old uh, hex pencils in the ashtray. and They said, was that to fill the logbook out? And I said, no, that was to rewind the tapes. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, you, your mind would wander and, and some days you'd get desperate and you'd pick up the uh, ABC radio and listen to Question Time in the House of Representatives, which that showed you just how boring you were, but boring it was. But uh, yeah, it's, um, I often thought about plans of the future and working for myself and, and uh, um, yeah, like most people, you know, you, you think about the future and uh, I, even though I'm very keen, uh, I was very keen on the history of the family, I'd, I didn't dwell on the past, but uh, I certainly wanted to know about the past because of my admiration for that generation. So, uh, and, and to this day, I, I still love music, all types, but generally, you know, country rock type stuff. And, and, and in Mackay, we've moved for the first time in our lives, we've moved into suburbia. And um, How are you coping with that? Uh, I think you should ask the neighbours how they're coping, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, look, I, um, I've got a uh, two-bay shed in the workshop. I'm always making stuff fire pits out of gas bottles and, you know, I can still weld and that sort of stuff. And uh, I've gone from a big zero uh, turn mower to a uh, battery-operated mower, a rechargeable battery-operated mower. But, uh, yeah, I've, I'm, I think I'm coping quite well. Um, I'm halfway through another book and, and I only write when I'm really in the mood um, but that fills the gaps, and uh, I, I, I find it. I've got everything I need, um, and we travel a fair bit nowadays too. We uh, we did have a fifth wheel caravan, but we sold that, and um, we just stay in park cabins or, or whatever. And, and there's still a lot of places I've been that Marie hasn't been that I want to take her to. I think she shakes her head at me sometimes. <clears throat> We'll be driving along, and I say, if we just go around this bend, this bridge, there used to be a good little pub there on the right-hand side, you know. And um, But, uh, yeah, I, I keep myself occupied. Do you have a favourite place that you used to travel to? Um, I think one of the most brilliant places I've seen, I was coming back from uh, Port Hedland, and... Um, I got into Halls Creek about 11 o'clock at night and tried to get some sleep, but the locals were fighting in the main street. Because so. that Fitzroy-Halls Creek Road back in those days would have been a shocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kept going and I got just past the Argyle Mine and I needed sleep, so I pulled up. And there'd been a cyclone through there. And that's where you start to go through the escarpments up to Kununurra. And uh, um, I woke up next morning just on daylight and uh, boiled the billy, cup of black tea, and looked down. I used to call it the Valley of the Kings. You'd look down that road and the escarpments and the water from the previous cyclone would be running down the escarpments and the sun rises straight up that valley. And it was as if someone was turning a light on, all the way, a spotlight on, all the way down the valley, lighting up the water, running off the escarpments. Most, most brilliant thing I've seen. Um, and I looked around and I had no one to talk to about it. Uh, and, and no camera, of course, long before iPhones and that sort of thing. But uh, um, of the places I like to drive to, I love going back to the Darling Downs. 
because that was home. That was the spiritual home of the family. And I just loved the scenery and and uh, not that I didn't like the the, the the country out west. It's it's brutal harshness sometimes has a has a beauty that a lot of people don't see, but I loved it. Absolutely loved it. When you retired, you started writing. What was the inclination to put pen to paper? Um, well, as I, as I said, I wanted to um, record or find out more about the, the family, uh, an annoying brother who kept at me to do it, and I thought it might help with the concentration. I'm still a very slow writer and a slow reader, but... Uh, it, and, and if I do write, I'll do an hour, an hour of intense, what I call intense work, you know. And then I'll walk away and I might do something the next day. Or, as I said, I'm halfway through a, another novel now that has nothing to do with the family, but um, it's something that's just come out of my imagination. So, uh, but yeah, I, I, the mo- the main motivation really was um, uh, with the book. I wanted the next generation. Or my children, uh, especially, to know something about the family and where they came from. So let's go back to the start of the book. Mm. Um, Six Hills Lane to Six Hills Lane to Gladfield. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So tell us about where it all started. Well, I thought, okay, let's have a crack at this. So I started doing some research. I learned to Google. The kids taught me to Google. I'm dangerous now, I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I rang my brother up, the annoying one in Sydney, and I said, look, I've made a decision on this. And he said, what? I said, I started this with expectations of recording every Monday that's ever existed in the universe. And I said, I'll never live long enough. I said, so I'm going to refine this to one lineal chain through our great-grandparents, uh, and then it became easy. It became clear to me I had parameters to work in, the timelines to work in, uh, and, and so I started. And I said to myself, well, where do I start? The start's usually a good place, isn't it? So I went back to the start of the name and, and traced its origins back to Normandy. Then I went to our great-grandparents and concentrated on their immigration to Australia and why they immigrated. So why did they come here? <clears throat> it was the uh, agricultural revolution in England or Great Britain. Uh, machinery was taking over a lot of the manual labour work that had been done. Uh, my great-grandfather was a farm bailiff, uh, which meant he was a, a farm foreman who helped, looked after estates. So he had uh, farming knowledge and the Queensland government were opening up Queensland for agriculture. They wanted to open up more of the country and they actually had an immigration officer in London recruiting people with farming experience to come over. Um, And I think in those days they got passage and they might have got 40 or 50 pounds and and a guarantee of a job when they got here. And 40, 50 a pound was a lot of money then too. So they arrived with, uh, they originally had 12 children. Two were deceased in England as young infants. Uh, they arrived with nine children. It took me six months to find the other one. 
and turned out she was the oldest one. Uh, and she was 21 when they immigrated and was already married, so she stayed in England. Uh, and when you think about it, never saw her family again. Pretty tough times, weren't they, you know? Um, so <clears throat> once I established all of that and put it together, then I was able to, to work my way through that, uh, that line, through to my generation, uh, and it, it came, even though it took two years, once I'd established that in my mind and established the, the parameters, it um, became relatively easy. And uh, because there's a lot of information out there, um, you know, that's, and most of it's freely accessible uh, in government departments and that sort of thing. And, and for example, with the great grandparents in England, I was able to build a story around their life just from the census. Every 10 years, you knew how many kids they had, where they lived, what they did for employment. Uh, so you could build a, build a story through that. And uh, yeah, it, it, was, um, it was a great experience for me. Uh, the, the research, I, I really enjoyed it. And I spoke earlier on about trying to find the tenth member, the tenth child that never came out. Uh, and I found her at three o'clock one morning. Um, and I, I found, found it through a funeral notice in the Warwick paper. Uh, Great-grandmother's funeral notice uh, said survived by such and such and such and such and her eldest daughter, Mrs Richardson, in Manchester. And that was her. And she only died in the war years, 1946, I think. So... It was, it was um, very rewarding. It was great. It was something I'd never done before, so it was a, another new frontier. Okay, so describe to me the writing process when you are writing. Are you, do you type? Do you, is it longhand? How do you do it? How does it all come together? Well, uh, many years ago, I was worked my way up into management with one of the national transport companies. And that was the days when uh, teletext was, you know, the technology. Facsimiles had just come in. Uh, and I used to have to do a lot of writing, a lot of memos and that sort of thing. And my running writing, as, as the kids call it, was uh, looked like an oil leak from a truck. So I learned to print so the girls could type it. And I, I eventually, I was able to print faster than I could freehand, and nowadays I still I still print, and I married the typist. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, keeping it in the family. So, um, so you you what year are we talking about when they came out? And do you know? Did you find out anything about the experiences that that they had? Yeah, they came out. <clears throat> they actually came out on the good ship Limba. In the, in the 1890s, um, and they took up employment, or the great-grandfather took up employment um, uh, with, on a farm at, at Warwick, on a, basically a, an estate, uh, and he worked there for many, many years until they got enough money to buy 67 acres uh, at Gladfield, and that was the first piece of property that any Monday ever owned in the country. So... Uh, probably ever owned in England too because they uh, 
property owners were in England were usually pretty wealthy people. So they took that up and they would have had to do other work because they couldn't make a, a living for the whole family on 67 acres. But of course by that time some of the kids were off working anyway. They were, they were adults themselves. Uh, and then <clears throat> my grandfather, who was only four when he arrived, um, in later years he share farmed about 263 acres uh, that was bordered that 67 acres and he eventually bought it. Um, and uh, I think from memory, the farmer he bought it off financed it himself. Out of, you know, and he had to pay out of his profits from his crops and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, they were they were basically farming people and um, and uh, d dairy. They set up a dairy on that two hundred sixty three acres, but it was always a pretty fine line because it was there was no irrigation, so you're in the lap of the gods as people on the land sort of know, only know too well. Always looking skyward. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where did that one go? <laughs> <laughs> it splits and go past. So uh, the family, as it developed um, towards World War One, what happened with that? Uh, <clears throat> well, in World War One, my grandfather... Uh, had married Mary Smiles, who was an Indigenous woman. Um, she had three brothers. Uh, Walter was the youngest. Uh, in, in World War I, Indigenous weren't supposed to enlist, but he, on his uh, war record, complexion was put down as dark. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to Gallipoli. Sorry, he went to North Africa first and then Gallipoli. And his uh, next eldest brother, William, and, and I haven't been able to uh, track all of this information down, but uh, William had immigrated to New Zealand and married a New Zealand woman. And um, so he was conscripted into the New Zealand Expeditionary Forces. So we ended up with two great uncles who fought against a common enemy for different countries. Now Walter died at Gallipoli. Um, uh, he was a, what was considered a bomb thrower. They used to make bombs out of, you know, they used jam tins and anything full of explosives. And yeah, he died at Gallipoli. William went on to the um, uh, Western Front and was wounded and went back to uh, New Zealand and he survived and he died at the age of 86 in New Zealand. So, uh, tough and interesting times. Did you learn much about what they went through in Gallipoli? Uh, no, 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 not, not, um, not Walter himself, but yes, I did read as much as I could about, you know, the trenches of Gallipoli and, and what the fire they were under. And uh, my annoying brother in Sydney has actually visited the grave site in uh, Gallipoli, so. What was his reaction when he went there? Um, he, he told me he was very emotional. Um, but <clears throat> he said he, he, he just felt as if someone had been there before him because 
there was flowers on Walter's grave. And maybe maybe some member of the family had been there before, but uh, but maybe that's just something they do in the war uh, war graves anyway. The war cemeteries. So uh, yeah, he he found it very emotional, very emotional. Uh, that that link, that connection. So uh, yeah, and in the Second World War, there was cousins that went off to war, and uh, uh, you know some of them without naming them struggled with it came back and, and one in particular uh, died quite young and he'd, he'd spent time in New Guinea in the swamps and pretty hard stuff to get over and handle so uh, yeah, war's no fun we uh, we're pretty fortunate we've had none near our near our um, shores for a long long time so I've got a son-in-law who's a ex-digger um, he spent 13 years in the army, uh, toured Middle East, uh, Malaysia, East Timor, two back-to-back tours for Afghanistan. Um, he got out and um, did a couple of degrees and now works in management in the coal mines. So uh, he's, he's done really well for himself. How did his war service treat him? Did he have any lasting problem? I... I, I he, he certainly had friends who have, but I think his trick was, and he was aware of this, he was a sergeant when he got out. You know, he was a, he's, a, he's a leader. Um, when he got out, he was determined to keep himself busy. He, he, he sought uh, uh, employment that was, I guess, intense on purpose, and he's done it a couple of degrees since, and... And uh, he's, he's a workaholic. You've got to hold him back, you know. He's, um, but uh, he's uh, now a super t- supply superintendent in the mines and, and doing really well. Um, but I don't... It often... He'll, he'll talk about it, talks to me about it. Uh, not a lot, but I don't think it ever leaves them, you know. That sort of, that sort of thing's got to put a scar on your heart and on your soul. Um, <clears throat> but he seems to be handling it Really well, and and I think that is the trick um, uh, to have something meaningful to go on with, and I think that's where we let a lot of the vets down. And I've employed them over the years, you know, in, in management. Uh, they get out of the army, and, and they're good men um, and women, and they're keen, but but it's such a transition for them. Um, they they get a bit lost, some of them, and. Uh, I know in the army, uh, you know, it's off, I've heard recruits say that you don't do anything unless you're told to do it. And when you get out into private enterprise as an employer or a manager or a supervisor, you want your people to think for themselves and make decisions for themselves. And it's very hard for them to transition. But if they can do that, uh, they're normally good workers, you know. A lot of them are very experienced too. Do you think that we do enough to repatriate our armed forces guys when they and girls when they get out of the forces not at all and I, and, I, and 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 I, I i'm not saying we just throw money at, do what the politicians do they throw money at a problem and think they've fixed it and i think that transition period for the vets and, and help educating them to go to the, the the new life and it is a completely new life um is crucial for them to then continue on um it's 
when they're in the army, they're part of a family. The, the army or the air force or the navy is their life. It's their whole life. They they eat, sleep, and breathe it. And when if it's cut off just like that, it leaves a hell of a hole in a person's life. You know. So I think we need to do more on that transition period to help them into uh, into uh, employment. My brother in Sydney has got a couple of vets working for him now, and. Uh, they, and, and I was really pleased to hear this, they had a six-month period, I think, where they were able to go out and find some work and see if they liked it. And if they didn't, they could then re-enlist. Uh, and uh, I was talking the other day about him and he said, uh, yeah, they're, they're out now and they're full-time with him and uh, they're going really, really well. And Six months is not a long time, but at least it's something, you know. But uh, yeah, that transition period I think is is crucial for him. Plus, I must also miss the brotherhood. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, um, I worked. I talked talked earlier about um, uh, working in management for a national transport company, and I was involved with them as a subcontractor and a, and later on as a manager. Of, for probably 15 years or something, and eventually uh, they were taking over, taken over by the toll uh, corporation, and uh, I put my hand up for a redundancy because um, I'd already started my own business by this time. So, um, but when I left and went and did my own thing, I lost that network, and uh, there was quite a few of those people I considered friends. There was quite a few of them that I didn't as well <laughs> but I lost that network um, and you do feel it you do feel it you, you're always part of that conversation that life but um, but for those guys and women um, their network involves people that you know they've fought and died with you know? so uh, big transition and that's where we really need to do more the first book that you wrote, basically your family history. What's the biggest thing you think you learned and took out of it? Um, on a serious note, I think the work ethic flows right through that story. Um, good, decent, hardworking people. Um, and when we look back through the generations, uh, my generation, um, so many of us with limited education have worked for ourselves. We've, we've had a desire <coughs> to do better. Um, and um, three of my four brothers all worked for ourselves and so many in the family have, have even our, the generation before, my father and his eight brothers and this uh, sorry six brothers and, and their sister all at one time or another all worked for themselves all employed people so as a family um, we've contributed to the society in our country um, it's it's nice to know an immigration success story absolutely you were talking about your grandfather and his wife Mary they've hmm. really um, had a, an interesting time of it. What were the the problems that they experienced being 
a white guy married to an indigenous lady? Well, I can only assume and 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 um, I'll tell a little story now. Um, one of the brothers was married. Uh, one of their sons was married, um, and that marriage split up. But they had a little girl, and the mother took that little girl out to the farm to Grandma Monday and said, you'll have to look after her, I can't. So they had her there for three or four months and, and um, uh, after three or four months, that little girl's family from the other side got a policeman and a solicitor and came out and took that little girl away because in their eyes they couldn't see that little, shouldn't be raised by an Indigenous woman. Um, and that little girl now is 84 and uh, and um, in hindsight she said she wished she'd stayed at the farm. You know? What effect did it have on her? What happened? Um, she was taken and raised by the other side of the family but because she was the outsider I think she was dropped down the list and she all her clothes were hand-me-down clothes from the boy, her stepbrothers and that sort of thing and she just felt that she was at the bottom of the rung, the bottom rung on the ladder, you know. Um, but, um, and that was one great thing out of that book and that reunion. Um, we found people we didn't know existed. So uh, in her, we found another cousin. So uh, uh, there was positives at it. And yeah, she's still going. She's in her 80s. And, and I was only talking to her on the phone the other day. How did you get the word out about the whole family reunion when you decided to put it all together? Oh, that was seven years ago. How did I do it? Letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, postage stamps. So, uh, and it took 12 months to put together um, because uh, we made a weekend of it. Um, we did tours of the cemetery um, on the sad day and then we, we did tours of the old farms and I'd found the original 50 acres where... Uh, Emily Smiles, the great-grandmother, the Indigenous midwife, uh, had lived um, and I spoke to the people that owned that. So I was able to take uh, bus tours there um, and we, yeah, we did the farms and um, and we made a whole day of that. I, I, uh, I had a mini bus organised, a 22-seater, and we did about three or four tours. <coughs> I was the tour director, of course. <laughs> and then... Um, uh, that night, anyone that wanted to sort of roll up at the RSL in Warwick. But then the following day, we had the official reunion at um, the Freestone Hall. Um, and we had a luncheon there and um, ran through all the, all the uh, uh, different lines of the family and who was there. And uh, uh, we still had uh, uh, Auntie Dot there. She was the wife of uh, Dick Mundy. She was the last living relative of that generation. She's since passed, so it was a great day. And I um, I got a lot of letters from different members of the family who really appreciated it because uh, uh, they never had a chance to catch up. As you know, people get busy in life and go their own direction. But yeah, so I'm trying to uh, organise another one for next year because we've lost quite a few from the last one. So and we're all getting on. Um, so. 
I've sent out another lot of letters. <laughs> <laughs> but Glenn tells me he's going to help me organise a Facebook page. So if I can stay out of Facebook jail long enough, um, we, we might uh, use a bit of technology this time. So uh, see how it goes. Do you think with the, uh, the benefit of the internet now that you will find more people to come along? Possibly, yeah, possibly. And uh, I think Glenn's idea of the Facebook page could be a good one, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it's, they're a hard thing to organise because, uh, you know, when you have a luncheon, you have to nail it down pretty close to the numbers um, because the caterers have to cater. Uh, and if they don't show up, I've got to pay the bill. <laughs> How many people did turn up? I think about 135 at the last 140. Smegger. Hey? It's mega. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was it was uh it was great. It was a great day. You moved on to the second book, mm. Quartercast Bastards. Mm. What was the presumption for writing that book? Well, I, I tripped over that story in the first one, of course, during the research. Um and a couple of different people had told me about this incident. Um uh, my father mentioned it briefly before while he was alive, didn't say too much. Um, but then I tripped over it again and the eldest uncle's eldest child was still alive and, and uh, I sat and spoke with her on two occasions, the second time at Dubbo and she was quite ill then and she told me as much as she could because she was a little girl when this all happened. Um, so I thought when I went through it I thought it was a, a, a good story uh, but I didn't have the, all the facts so I couldn't write it as a factual so I wrote it as a fiction based around real life real life events and real characters so this was in in the late 50s no, or early 1952 49 49 okay yeah, after the war the brothers had all gone their own way because um, they were all in the Civil Construction Corps during the war, building roads and airfields and that sort of thing. Um, and the eldest two, um, Alf or Bob, as we, everyone had, they all had nicknames, you know, because, um, and, and Dick, who was Arthur, uh, they end up down New South Wales, so making, their, making their name for themselves in the coal fields and they were, some subcontractors, they had some machinery and equipment of their own. In 1949, the Communist Party had gained control of the coal miners union and 23,000 coal miners went on strike. And you know, what I'm saying now is, is fact has actually happened. Um, so 23,000 coal miners went on strike and it was a political strike, it wasn't... Uh, under the pretense of getting better conditions for the coal miners. It was a Labor government and the first time in Australian history that the army was called in peacetime to break a strike. The strike went for seven weeks. But <clears throat> seven men refused to strike. Uh, and that was my father and his six brothers. Um, Why is that? It's strange. Though, though most of them were good Labor men. Um, but Bob had debt, he had machinery, and the bank wouldn't back him. They said, if you don't work, you, don't, you lose your house, you lose your gear. And, and also, they had the principle that it wasn't, it wasn't a genuine strike, it was a political strike. 
So uh, they kept working and the other brothers came to help. And for seven weeks, pretty violent times, uh, Bob's wife Kathleen, they had to arm her with a pistol so she could go and get groceries. Um, and after the seven weeks, the company abandoned them. The, the, the government settled with the unions and the company settled with the unions, but one of the stipulations was the union said we won't work with them. So the company, even though they encouraged them to keep working and applauded them when they worked, uh, at the end of the seven weeks, cut them free. So, uh, so I set about writing a story. And uh, 146,300 words later, yeah, we're finished. But did they feel really cheated by that? Absolutely. Absolutely. From what I can gather, yeah, they were. And, and they did get some retribution. Um, it's in the story. Uh, they, uh, but then, as was that generation, they, they all dispersed and got on with lives and, and, um, and they um, settled all over from Townsville to Walgett, um, all over the, all over the um, East Coast, basically, and, and continued on with life. And, and they were an amazing generation. I, I was only saying to someone the other day, um, my mother and father uh, lost a house in big floods in Maitland. Uh, I think they rented that house. It wasn't theirs, but they lost everything. Many years later, they had a house burned down in Mirabar in Victoria. And then many years after that, they lost their house in Townsville, the Cyclone Althea. And, and like I was out here, kid, just, just rebuild and keep going. What do you remember about it? Was it fun? What the... Um, the whole experience? Did you find it an, ad an adventure as a kid? What, living with... No, what? they're losing everything and having oh. to get on and rebuild. And well, the Maitland one, I, was, uh, I wasn't born then. But the one in uh, Mirabara, um, in Victoria, uh, the drive-in picture theatre had opened in Bendigo, first one ever. Uh, so Dad took us over there for the pictures. And it was about 60 miles or something away. And we just got there and they called his name over the loudspeaker and he went up to the office. They said, you've got to go back, the house is on fire. And by the time we got back there, it was, it was burnt. Um, and I don't really remember that much more about that, but I do remember Althea because I was an adult. And uh, it was the first time we'd all been away together on holidays. Um, and the house blew down. And we went back, we went straight back when we could get through because the roads were cut. Uh, we salvaged most of the furniture, even though it was spread around the paddock. Tough furniture in those days, it wasn't made of chipboard. Uh, and dried things out and picked up all the clothes and they salvaged all that. And then Dad bought an old house at, um, from North Ward in Townsville and shifted it to Woolgaroo and uh, turned it into a home. It just that attitude of, well, we can't sit here and cry, we've got to keep going. They just seemed to have that, that attitude. Going back, going back to the coal miners' strike, I just want to um, uh, come back to that because there was quite a bit that went on at that time. Can you just run through in the story what you've talked about? Um, yeah, well, um, uh, of course, 
there was a lot of uh, anger towards them. Uh, and they were escorted in to the mine daily. They would alternate their shifts from day shift to night shift. They even had uh, other entries into the mine. This is in Cullenbullen. Um, to get away from the from the pickets and the and the rock throwing and all the rest of it, um, as I said, they, Kathleen had to be armed with a pistol. Uh, a lot of animosity in the town towards them all. Um, Why were they the only group and crew that would actually work? Why weren't there others that actually joined them? Well, they were subcontractors. They owned machinery. Or them and the banks owned the machinery. So they had a pretty fair debt. That's why they had to keep working. Um, the others were all employees. Uh, they were just employees. So, and, and, of course, fear. There's fear in a mob, you know. It creates a lot of fear. So, um, yeah, they were, they, they were tough times. Um, and after the seven weeks, they had to move on. Uh, but they sought retribution. And I don't want to tell you too much about that because people won't read the book if I tell the whole story. But uh, Well, I'm sure they still, it's a great yarn. So that sort of retribution, what sort of were the, some of the things that happened? Um, well, from what I can understand, the company did uh, help in some way in that um, uh, they, they bought the equipment that they had, uh, there was, they basically paid the loan out. There was no no money left over, uh, and they they are they were able to sell a couple of houses because it was a, that they had there was accommodation was in short supply, so they were able to sell those and they made some money. But for for years and years, it was alleged machinery was being stolen and equipment being stolen. Um, boy. Certain members of the uh, 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 workforce, um, they tripped over the stash. The brothers tripped over the stash where a lot of the stuff was hidden. So um, they set a plan up where they, they would, uh, at a certain time, they would leave and take as much as they could with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, a tractor ended up on a family farm and a couple of trucks ended up working for the main roads around the Darling Downs and, uh, and that's what they did, yeah. What was your reaction when you were researching it, when you're finding these things out? Uh, did you know about it before you started? Other not, than not all of it, no. And 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 I filled gaps, of course. I, as I said, it's a fiction based, you know, around real life events and people. Um, I was just astounded at their uh, boldness <laughs> and their bravery. You know, to take a stand, draw a line in the sand, take a stand. Um, um, quite amazing, quite amazing. Um, and I think it runs in the family. Um, I had to break the picket line at Queensland Nickel many years later uh, in my own truck. What happened there? I was subcontracting to uh, at, at one of the TNT groups, and uh, and uh, the union had gone on strike. There, and I knew them all. Um, 
And uh, they said, you've got to take this load out there. And I said, well, they're on strike. And I said, if you don't take it out, you haven't got a job. And I had a truck that I had to pay for. I had a new mortgage. So uh, I went out there and, uh, and uh, it got a little heated for a little while. But I knew, knew the union delegates. And I said to them, look, I'm up against the wall here. I don't go in. I lose everything I've got. Um, but I'll tell you what I will do. I go in, I'll unload, and I'll find out what's going on, and I'll let you know on the way out. <laughs> so they agreed to that, and uh, yeah, we got over it. We got over it, and then many, many years later, my son, who's uh, an accountant uh, for an American company, um, he was uh, getting married, and he was a junior accountant at this stage. So he took twelve months off and went and worked with his father-in-law at Curtis Island as an industrial painter to get some money to get married. And uh, they went on strike there and he broke the picket line with a half a dozen others as well because he wanted to keep working. So, runs in the family. Is it the work ethic? <clears throat> I think so. I think so. We, you know, uh, during my working life, I've made mistakes. And it's an embarrassment, you know, but you, you, you want to get the job done. Um, I've always said to my children, uh, if you show up when you're supposed to show up and do what you've been asked to do, you'll be ahead of 70% of the population. They've proved that. Um, they're both successful people. So, uh, yeah, I think, as I said earlier on, that's one of the biggest gifts our parents gave us was work ethic. Um, it's just, in, you look at the ads in the paper now, see if you haven't got a job today, you don't want one. So, uh, yeah, interesting times. Do you think you passed your work ethic on to your kids? Oh, I think both mine and my wife's work ethic has been passed on. My wife's uh, always always been a worker, and um, and I think they um, got a big percentage of their moral compass from from my wife. Because I was away for a bit of the time. And that's what I was going to uh, to ask you about because you are spending so much time on the road. Mm. How tough is it to have a family life when you are a long-distance truck driver? <clears throat> it is. It is. And, and um, as the kids grew, I sought more work that would let me work long hours during the week and at least get one day off on a weekend because I got involved in their sports, and, you know, and, and um, I'm I just a big fan of sports for kids. It's just one of the foundations that helped turn them into decent people and people who can communicate. And, and uh, so I, I, I deliberately sought work that would let me or allow me to do that. And, and I mean, I remember in the fuel days, uh, my... Monday to Friday was out of bed at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, leave the depot at two. Uh, you do fourteen hours plus your two half-hour breaks. That's uh, fifteen hours. So you'd, you'd get home at six at night, uh, six seven at night. Have a shower, feed, a couple of light beers, get into bed, out of bed at one. Do that Monday to Friday, and you know you do. Uh, What's that? Five, Seventy hours in five days, and uh, and then uh, try and recover by Monday morning again. 
and uh, interesting. Um, I lived on acreage, and I, I'm a bit of a particular sort of a bloke, and uh, one of my brothers said to me, I don't know how you kept that block so tidy and worked the hours you did. And uh, it's called youth. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't got it anymore. With the price of fuel going up these days, $2.30, $2.40 a litre, and and looking like being on the rise when the excise is um, re-added on to the cost. How hard do you think it is for people in the transport industry and earth-moving going forward? They're falling like flies. If they can't get their prices up, they'll disappear from the market. And, and I mean, uh, there's small regional transport companies closing every week. People who started businesses, had them going for 20, 30 years, and, th- and they're my vintage, they're looking to retire. They can't sell the business. No one wants a transport business anymore. There's no margins left in it. Um, so they just have an option and walk away. Um, and if they and all the forces are against them putting their prices, getting their prices up, and it's a, something I said to Bob Catter many, many years ago. Um, <clears throat> if transport operators got paid the right money, the price of everything in this country would go up, inflation would go up, and the only way you control it is with interest rates. It's got to happen. Oh, it's got it, but I think it's, you know, they're talking a possible recession. I have no doubt we will have a recession. And I'm no economist, but I've owned businesses and I know how to read a P&L sheet. And I think it could be a lot longer than they're saying. Um, you know, I lived through the the um, recession we had to have with Keating and we were paying 18% interest on our mortgage. And people say, how did, how did you pay it? I said, we owed 25000 or 30000 not 800000 or 600000 that a lot of the kids owe nowadays. You know, it's just mind-boggling. And I bought my first truck, I think it was $5,000. Uh, and I paid another two for a trailer, <laughs> second-hand. <laughs> and, um, you know, a new Kenworth and a trailer now. No change out of half a million dollars. Uh, $25,000 a year to register it. Another twenty-five for insurance. Just just can't keep going. So uh, I think we're in... Uh, if they do get their prices up and get paid the right money... Well, they have to or too many will yeah, go buzz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing this country needs is two more supermarket chains because uh, they just control way too much of the, not only the, 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 the commodity, the food market, the transport market as well. And uh, that's why I was always critical of uh, Rudd with his $900. You know, everyone went and bought Chinese televisions. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that money could have started the construction of an, a, a parallel railway line from Melbourne to Cairns, designated just for freight, and taken half the trucks off the road. They should have put it into infrastructure. I thought that yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. wasted money. Yeah, 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 um, absolutely. Um, and uh, it, if they, if we had a, a parallel line, say to Cairns, uh, designated for freight, um, half the trucks off the road, half 
you know, reduces the maintenance on the highway. I, I've just driven down the Bruce Highway, and even the, the sections just open. The new sections have fallen apart, you know. Um, and it would have created work for a decade as well in the construction. So, uh, yeah. Um, but they also gave the money to the people that weren't producing. Exactly. And I remember reading an article because I take interest in news around Warwick because uh, that was the home. And uh, during that period, um, the pokies in Warwick recorded a record uh, take. I think the, there was one week 700,000 or something went into pokies. So a lot of people who, who really should have spent that money more wisely put it into the pokies or you know, just, just, as you say, infrastructure. So the government got the money back anyway. They did, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so as you look further ahead then for your kids, what do you see economically? Do you think that we could end up with another depression? Um, when you look at the likes of Sri Lanka and Ukraine, Russian war, it's, there's every reason to think it is possible. I mean, my my own children, you know, they're quite successful and going along fine. Um, well, your grandkids, you know. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, in reality, uh, if I if I could wave my magic wand and become a benevolent dictator overnight, uh, I would change the whole institution of our country, the whole federation. You know, we're, we're only twenty five million people. The first thing I do is get rid of the state governments. We're just most other governed country in the world. Um, you imagine a country with common civil and uh, criminal laws, common road rules. Um, you know, it's just um, common environmental rules. We're just burdened with uh, red tape and green tape. Uh, I'd change the whole tax system. Uh, what would you do? You've been in business. What would you do to change the well, tax system? Uh, all wage and salary earners would pay a flat rate of 15%, regardless of how much you earn. I see no sense in, uh, in uh, punishing hard work or rewarding lazy work. 15%. Everyone pays 15%. The GST would go to 15% with no... Oh, let me go back. The fifteen percent wage for the wage and salary earners, uh, no tax returns, no deductions. That fifteen percent just goes to the government every week. gives gives the wage and salary earner more money to spend. GST to go to fifteen percent with no exemptions, um, and into the constitution I would put that one percent of that GST or one point five percent of it would go into a fund for aged care. Another one point five percent would go into a pension fund, and I reckon within a, dec a decade, you wouldn't need superannuation funds because there'd be enough there for a pension for every man and woman in the country. And when it comes to companies, ABN holders, private limiters, um, uh, trusts, they don't do tax returns. They just pay 3% of their turnover. And that way you pick up everyone. Um, 
For example, a mining company that produces a million tonne a year, worth $20 a tonne, they sell it to their holding company in Singapore for cost, because Singapore only, or a small margin, because Singapore only paid 10%. Doesn't matter. They sell, they put, sell a million tonne at $20 a tonne, they pay 3% of that. And what it does for the, for the uh, business people and the tradies and everyone, they know exactly what their tax component is each year. It's 3%. But if you earn it in this country, you pay 3% of your turnover. You pick up the Microsofts, you pick up the Googles, you pick up the mining companies. And I think that's a much fairer um, situation. For the, and the, I think without the, without the benefit of modelling, I think the government would have a bigger, a bigger uh, tax base. And the other thing, and, and the bureaucrats would fight against this, uh, there is another system very similar in the world and they administer their tax system with 2,000 people and they've got roughly the same population. We've got over 15,000 bureaucrats in our ATO. So, yeah, so the bureaucrats may not, uh, may not like it. So, interesting. But I don't think I'm going to get the job. <laughs> you say you were uh, having some discussions and, and interaction with Bob Catter. Long time ago, yeah, when I was in management, yeah. What do you think of him? Um, I, 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 think he's, I think he's a good man. Um, and I've met him a couple of times in different situations. But essentially... It He's a professional politician. He is. He is. And, 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 and I was in many ways a supporter of his for a long time, but I, I'm, I'm not sure what Bob stands for anymore. Uh, you know, in the last election, uh, he was pushing for the Hell's Gate Dam. And then when Morrison said, well, here's the money, Bob jumped up and down. And, and I felt that <clears throat> why doesn't he uh, want it now? Be, because that was his crown that he was running on but it had been taken away from him because Morrison made the money available so yeah I'm not sure what Bob stands for anyway we've recently had a change of government with the federal election Mm -hmm. what do you think will be the effect of a Labor government in these trying times well just based on experience and you're talking to someone who's worked on both sides of the spectrum. I've been a union delegate as a younger man and, uh, and, and I've also been a small business owner. Um, and based on history, Labor tend to struggle to be fiscally responsible. Well, they spend it and the Liberal government generally yeah. uh, repairs it. So. Yeah. Going into a period, as as you uh, believe, of uh, an economic recession or even possibly worse, did the voters do the right thing? Well, I'm sure they think they did. But once again, going back to me being a benevolent dictator and wanting to change the system, <laughs> <laughs> you know, w- when a party can gain a majority in the House of Representatives with 31% of the primary vote, I think our system needs to be looked at. It's, uh, I, I, don't, I didn't see that. Uh, and I didn't vote for Labor or, or, or Liberal this time around, but I don't see that, that result as reflective of the, uh, 
and the wish of the people, to be honest with you. Um, but others would argue that um, that's the way it is and that's the way it is. Um, I mean, uh, the reality is in the last federal election, Labor would have only... Labor won 80% of their seats only with the help of the, the uh, Green preferences. And um, I saw some figures the other day and I, I've been against preference voting for a long time. And uh, Well, if, if there's going to be preferences, it, it should only be the voter who's allowed to preference, not parties. But I saw some figures the other day about first across the line. And, and if first across the line had been in this election, uh, they were saying that Labor probably still would have won anyway. So, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know what the, the result is, but to go back to your question, um, if Labor continue their traditional way of governance, it will only fuel inflationary uh, pressures. And... Uh, and unfortunately, the only mechanism we now seem to have are interest rates, to rise interest rates to try and stop people spending. But we now have a, a generation of young people who have no fear of debt. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was quite, quite interesting with the recent rate, first rate uh, increase. Uh, my son made the statement that... Uh, if everyone gave up their latte on the way to work of a morning, it would probably more than cover the cost of their mortgage increase. So we've, we've, we've really developed a lifestyle now that lends itself to uh, free spending. And uh, I don't know whether the current generation has got the, the self-discipline to pull themselves back from that lifestyle. And it, uh, a lifestyle of, um, it's, uh, what's the word, commodities, you know, that, we were only talking the other day, when we built our first house, um, I was able to do a lot of it as an owner-builder. That's disappeared now. Uh, you know, people aren't able to do that. And on the way home from work, I would go down into the river and load a load of topsoil onto the ute and spread that out around the yard of an after, late of an afternoon, plant our own lawn and do all that. We, we sat on boxes uh, for chairs, for a while, slept on a mattress on the floor until we could afford furniture. Uh, and nowadays, when they move into a new home, it's uh, it's got the irrigation done, the lawn done, the furniture's in there, the four-wheel drive's in the driveway, and I don't begrudge the modern generation that stuff, but you've got to pay for it. You know, it's... Uh, with all... Uh, you can have all the creative accounting in the world, but at the end of the day, you've got to pay your debts. And... Uh, I don't know whether this generation is, like I said, self-disciplined enough to uh, pull back from that and, and accept a little less. Do you think there'll be carnage economically because of the the way that they have that McDonald's quick fix and want it now, pay later mentality? Oh, I think in some sections of the uh, of the economy there will be, and gee. Um, when you look at some of the house prices in the last 12 months, uh, I wouldn't like that hanging over my head. But of course, my generation in inherited um, um, basically a fear of debt or, or, or uh, um, uh, an absolute must to control your debt. You know? Was that because uh, it was still the hangover of the Depression? Pressure. Because I, yeah. the, the, the stock market didn't, when the drop wasn't um, uh, 
it, it didn't sort of like come back to the, the levels of pre-depression until the 50s. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, absolutely a hangover from those, you know, I inherited that hangover from my parents' generation, um, the control of debt. <clears throat> but of course, I'm, I'm reaping the benefit of it now. Um, you know, uh, we're self-funded retirees. We're not wealthy, but we're self-funded retirees and we're en- enjoying the fruit of all that hard work and controlling debt earlier on. Um, and uh, as my son said the other day, go and enjoy yourself, Dad. Just don't leave me a debt. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're more than happy, uh, the, the younger generation, to accept the money from an inheritance, but they don't want the debt. Absolutely. And uh, I get the impression uh, there's a lot of the younger generation uh, factoring that inheritance into their calculations for the future. Whereas in my generation, we didn't expect to get left too much at all because every, the previous generation, it was all about survival, you know. And uh, when my father died, um, uh, he left mum in a house that she owned and a modest bank account. She got a government pension. Um, and realistically, she could live reasonably well on that. Um, um, but nowadays, boy, the McMansions uh, need more than the pension to keep them going. When you're talking about um, the pensions, what do you think about the welfare system if we do have economic hard times? Um, you know, really, when you look at anyone out there that's uh, paid a tax bill, the government sends you a sheet and it shows you in percentages where your money goes. And welfare is not that high in a percentage, on a percentage basis. And I forget the figures. Um, but I, I was interested the other day to hear Labor's new policy on unemployment and the points system. They're changing it to a points system. Uh, to get your dole, you have to get so many points each month. And, <coughs> pardon me, uh, that's, from my point of view, that seems to be... a a much tougher position than the coalition had on, on it, and it's probably a good move. It's probably a good move. Um, um, I, th- I, th- I don't think there's that many out there that really um, are bludging on the dole to coin an Australian phrase. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that do need help, uh, but it's going to be tough for governments, regardless of their colour. Uh, if there is a prolonged recession, uh, it's going to be tough for them to make sure the really um, necessary welfare to go to the people that must have it. And there are, you know, with health and, and age age care and NDIS and all that sort of stuff, there's people out there that do need our help. And, and as recession bites, and if it's prolonged, it's going to be difficult for governments to make a decision. And uh, the first area they can cut, which has got plenty of fat in it, is the size of government. Our government's costs are enormous in this country. You know, once again, I'd get rid of all the state governments. But they aren't going to uh, cut their own throat. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely not. No, no, no. That's um, yeah. That'd be like telling the football coach he's got to drop his son from the next game. <laughs> <laughs> You've got another book coming out, and you're working on it at the moment. Tell us about that one. Uh, it's futuristic. 2031. It's about a retired Mossad agent in his 60s and his uh, wife, she's a medical researcher, uh, escaping the brutality and uh, corruption of a socialist state of Victoria in 2031. Uh, bit murderous, pretty dark, something completely different. Um, I'm about halfway through it and I, I have to be honest, I've stalled, I've got sort of involved in other bits and pieces and and, uh, and the typist is dragging the chain too, I must admit. <laughs> but I, but I'll, get, I'll get back to it. And like I said earlier on, uh, I really only write when I'm in the mood. Uh, I don't do anything in life anymore that doesn't feel enjoyable. So, um, yeah, I'll get back to it. How many books do you think you have in you? Um, have you heard anything? You, you haven't been talking to God about <laughs> a timeline? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a, there's, I'd, I'd like to do a story uh, out of the, the first from the first book about the two brothers who fought in the First World War, the two Indigenous boys. I think there's a story there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to get a couple more done. Um, but once again, while it's enjoyable and if and if people find some enjoyment out of it, uh, I've had a great response from this uh, second book. Uh, uh, from not only family but friends and associates of uh, uh, family members. Uh, I got a call the other day. Uh, a friend of mine wants a book to send it to uh, Canada to a friend of his who's got bookstores over there. So, And uh, he just finished reading it a second time. So, um, yeah, a um, couple of more books would be nice. But once again, at my pace, at my time. And... Uh, I'm probably going to have to buy the odd steak dinner and Chardonnay for the typers to, to catch up. <laughs> you became a pilot as well. Is that something that uh, you enjoyed? Did, was it just a, a, a hobby or did you...? Yeah, be a, I, initially as a young lad I would have liked to join the Air Force, um, but that wasn't to be. But I eventually became a recreational pilot. It was a hobby, a bit of... Uh, but... Um, I absolutely loved it because, uh, uh, and I think one of the reasons was the self-discipline required. You know, um, you do it right or you die, basically. And if you do it right, it, it really is enjoyable. When and, you run out of fuel and you can't park somewhere. Mm, yeah, I had one engine out, um, but that was fine. It was over over the Flinders Highway, the longest airfield, airstrip in the world. So. <laughs> <laughs> Force but, landing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Luckily, it was close to Prairie, and there's a pub there. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happened? Oh, just a magneto problem. You know, it was fixable, but it's hard to fix in the air. Uh, so, uh, but I, I miss it. Uh, but when you retire and the money stops coming in one end, uh, you've got to make sure there's not too much going out the other end. It's a very expensive hobby. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's. Uh, uh, it's uh, and it, it's, it runs in the family. Uh, I've got cousins that have flown. My brother in Sydney is a pilot. Uh, 
he actually, a couple of years ago, sold uh, his flight training school at uh, uh, at the Gold Coast. He had a, a flight training school there as one of his businesses. Uh, and uh, in, in 2006, he and I went to the Oshkosh Air Show, um, a lifelong dream. That's a biggie. Yeah, spent four hours in a B-17 flying fortress. Wow. Had to pay for the privilege, but <laughs> would never get another chance. And and uh, actually, we hopped on a plane in LA and uh, to go up to Apple of Wisconsin and uh, and sat down beside Carol Shelby, the race car driver. So we had a flight with him and several drinks. And and uh, he was going up to release the GT500 Falcon, uh, Mustang because Ford were a sponsor for the Oshkosh Air Show. And uh, so he said, come to the Ford tent tomorrow and uh, let the security know. So we went there and had lunch with him. He was a great fella, down to earth. Uh, he'd had, uh, I think, six wives and two hearts. So he'd lived life to his fullest. And, uh, yeah, I think he only passed last year. Uh, and he picked our accent straight away because his best mate was uh, Jack Brabham. And he used to come over to Sydney every two years to, to see him. So, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. But uh, I, I think my greatest achievement with flying, um, we had friends who separated and they had a 14-year-old son who took it really bad. You know, for a young kid, it's a bad time to go through it at 14. I used to take him flying. He's now second officer on 757s out of Cathay Pacific at Hong Kong. So... Um, Nice to know I've had some influence on someone. Did you ever think of taking it further yourself? Oh, by the time I'd gotten into it, um, I was too old, basically. Um, yeah, um, it, it, to, to, you really need to be in there young at a young age, you know. Um, but uh, I'm still a YouTube buff with all the flying uh, stories and... Uh, it's just uh, the creativity of the people that build this stuff and make it work is just amazing. It's amazing. Uh, especially for a bloke who uh, was amazed when he saw his first facsimile machine. <laughs> but, yeah, loved it, absolutely loved it. Uh, recommend it to any young people out there. Um, amazing. So... Looking back now over your life, what would you say are some of the highlights? Do you look back and is as you um, now are retired and reminisce about your life, what are some of the things that you just go, wow, I'm so glad I've done that? Well, I married the right girl. No, I couldn't have had a better partner. Yeah. Um, kids couldn't have had a better mother and... Now, the grandkids have got the best nanny. Um, but that's been the cornerstone of my life, the family. Was that fate, though, when you said that she was in the office? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's, um, so I decided, bugger Alaska. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's funny, like... Uh, after about three months, a mate of mine said to me, how are you going with the girl out the front? Because he knew I was keen on her. And I said, not real good. She didn't really want much to do with me. 
He said, maybe if you had a shave and cut your hair and got rid of those Northern Territory swamp clothes, you might have half a chance. <laughs> so I did that, cleaned myself up a bit, and after she started talking to me, and after about six months, she started taking half me pay and putting it in the safe. Those days we got paid in a brown envelope in cash, and all the details were written on the front. And that was so I had some money on Monday because, you know, Friday afternoon down the pub and all the rest <laughs> of it. <laughs> Spending your money on cars. And so she, after about six months, she did started taking half me pay and putting it in the safe. Then uh, after about nine months, she eventually went out with me. And that's when she started taking all the pay. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I, I, I look at um, different things. I, you know, I worked my way up into management. I ran one of the most profitable road divisions outside of Brisbane uh, with limited education. Um, you know, sat on the bo board of a boys' college, uh, sat on the board of recreational aviation. These books, something I never thought I'd do. And um, I look back at them now and think... Jesus, did I do that, you know? Um, uh, but Father always said, you'll walk past a lot of doors in life, open them. You never, you never know what's on the other side. So I thought that was a good philosophy. Don't be scared to have a go and don't worry about what people say. As I said before, it's none of our business. Um, just go and have a go. Um, yeah, I've had a great life. With more to come, I hope. Sounds like a, a good um, philosophy. Mm, mm, yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan. Terry Mundy, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thank you.